This is a Harper Guys production. The following will contain adult subject matter and may not be suitable for all audiences. seeing people finally get what they deserve welcome to the gallows this is jake with you as always my co-host adam yo and adam's gonna jump in with our psa absolutely uh you can visit us at the gallowspodcast.com from there you can uh, go to our facebook and twitter uh you can also visit us everywhere podcasts are found uh, for questions comments or case ideas please email us at the gallowspodcast at gmail for our loyal listeners, it's good to be back after a, a nice hiatus at the end of the year. It's been a busy end of 2023. We're excited to jump in on 2024 for you. So we're going to get started a little bit here. Uh, what's going on in the world of executions? So we have a few coming up. It's kind of some different things going on in the world, though. Uh, on 125, coming up here in a couple weeks, we have Kenneth Eugene Smith in Alabama. This was uh, the murder-for-hire case of a preacher's wife. Kind of a landmark case. This is a big deal. We have a new form of capital punishment being used for the very first time in the United States. That is a 100% true story. Where? What is it? This is in Alabama. This is called nitrogen hypoxia. So long story super short on what this is, when you breathe in normal air, about 78% of that is nitrogen, right? What they do is they remove all of the oxygen, carbon, and anything else to where it is pure hydrogen this is supposed to be one of the most humane new things on the market so it's basically the gas chamber you're choking to death but you don't even realize it you go to sleep fairly quickly because of the lack of oxygen that you're going to experience very quickly and then after your pulse is gone they're going to continue to release the nitrogen into the chamber for another 15 minutes Uh, this was actually chosen uh, by mr smith who's going to be going through it uh, as his way, the state had a bunch of bunch of cases. I mean, not a bunch of cases. They had a bunch of conversations back and forth, uh, and it actually ended up passing their straight Supreme Court in a six to two motion to put this through. So a lot of people are going to be watching to see what happens with this. So I'm assuming this is like a glass gas chamber. I, I don't know the exact setup yet. There's a lot of information that well, has gonna, not been released. They're going to want people to watch him. Is what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what I'm saying is they just they haven't released tons of information about how this is going to work yet. So there will be more updates forthcoming in the future on this one. So, the, but just real quick. So sure. They're, they're trying to. It just so they put him in. Let's just say it's a glass chamber. Yeah. And he's sitting there. Yeah. I'm assuming restrained, so he can't 
I don't think they're going to let him run around in yeah. the chamber. So, so <laughs> I just didn't know if it was going to be like laying flat. We don't know all this stuff yet. No. But he's going to be laying flat or he's sitting in a chair. Yep. I would imagine probably laying flat, seeing how that's how the uh, they've been doing a lot of these yes. with the injections. And then they're going to, everybody will leave, they'll shut the door, it'll be sealed, and then they're going to let the gas, and then how, it's supposed to be quick. It's supposed to be fairly quick. Like within, from what I understand, within a few minutes you're asleep. So the whole room is filled with this, and you don't choke, you don't gurgle, you don't gag. It's just nitrogen. You just stop breathing pleasantly. Yep. That's what it sounds like. Like your victims didn't, but anyways, okay. Yes. And then uh, that's it. Okay. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. So Got it. I'll keep you posted as more information comes out. On it's kind of crazy. Like uh, it's not very often, ever. That you come up with a new way in this day and time, right? And get it approved. So we'll keep you posted on how that goes. Uh, on two twenty eight, we got Ivan Cantu out of Texas. He uh, killed his cousin and his cousin's fiance to rob them of a couple hundred dollars in jewelry. Not exactly worth it, <laughs> I would say. Three thirteen, we got James Harris coming in Texas. He killed a man and stabbed his wife in a drug fueled home invasion. The wife did survive that. Uh, coming up on four four, we got Michael Smith. In Oklahoma, he was a gang member who shot and killed a witness that was going to testify against some other members of his gang, and then he actually killed a gas station attendant in the same day. Another little twist on this one, uh, there was another Michael Smith that was executed in Virginia in 1986. So not the first Michael Smith that will go through the gallows. It's a bad name. Yep, and the last one to finish off April is going to be on April the 9th. This is Brian Dorsey. Kind of... Sick case. I haven't gone through all of the details on it yet. He shot and killed two of his cousins that had let him live with them, shot and killed both of them, and actually raped the girl cousin of his. So, kind of a messed up case. So, that's one uh, That's one of when it comes to fruition. He might get moved up the list to, to do a deeper dive on that exact case. Yeah, messed up and sick. Uh, right? Like, killing your cousins is one thing. I mean, it is ironic to me that there are two of them on the current list here. That are on for killing their cousins. It just, I mean, I don't know. When I think of cousins, maybe it's because my family was close growing up. We, yeah. Everybody was, you know, a lot of people, a lot of cousins. But Sure. <clears throat> I just, <sighs> raping your cousin, I just, I can't. That's what I'm saying. It seems like, put my head around it. It seems like a lot. Yeah. A couple other quick notes that I just want to make sure that we cover on this, right? Uh, Oklahoma cases right now. So if you would go to upcoming executions and see what is coming up state by state, Currently, Oklahoma has a whole bunch of cases that are currently, uh, they have a, a new term that's scheduled later, scheduled later, scheduled later. What happened was at the end of 2023, there were a couple members of the state assembly that basically uncovered what they consider to be some very ineffective counsel. There's one particular case that they're looking at that they are saying, this gentleman, it really looks like he acted in pure self-defense when he killed two people hmm. and he has slated to to get the to get the gallows for it. So what they are doing is they're actually going through a process right now where they are looking at every death row case right now and they are re-examining them specifically for ineffective counsel. So they're going through them to where like if you go back up and look, we have the one that's on 44 for Michael Smith. His case has already gone through this basically take a second look at it, make sure that everything's on the up and up. So I don't hate it. You know, sometimes delays can be a lot for a family when you drag on for 30 years. But I think, you know, if you feel like you have a real reason as a state to take another look, you're not trying to subvert what the people of your state have asked for, right? 
I mean, I mean, there has to be a reason. But I don't think it, it doesn't sound like it's going to be like a multi-year delay unless they find something that's like very egregious in a case. The thing that bothers me is though, if this is a no doubter, yeah, and it's getting delayed. Excuse me, and getting delayed and getting delayed. I mean, there are people on the other side, the victim side. Yes, it could be dropping off. I agree. And completely. passing away, they really wanted to see vindication. I agree. Even if it, even if they consider this vindication. So that's that's what bothers me. If they go through this whole process, though, there's 37 people currently that are on death row in Oklahoma. If one of them is exonerated, it's worth the process. I would agree. So it'd be interesting to see how that goes. The other one right here in our backyard here in Ohio, all Ohio death penalty cases, and they are stacking up. I bet. Stacking up. They are all currently under to be rescheduled. Anything that's coming up on the docket for basically clerical reasons, they're going to get moved. And they haven't come out and said this. Basically, DeWine is pushing all of these back until he's out of office. He basically doesn't want to deal with any of this. Oh, he doesn't want any more blood on his hands. Yeah. So uh, you know, there's one guy. I mean, not a fan of this. D- just because uh, if there was if there was a concern over how it's being done, if there was a concern over somebody's innocence or guilt in a right, case, right. I, I am. We are the first ones to jump on board and say, "Hey, we need to take a hard look at this." You know, we like there is no greater injustice than somebody losing their life. When they yeah. don't need to. Oh, you want to get it right, 100%. 100%. We've had cases on here where we don't think that justice had been served, right? But if you're just doing it and it is avoiding your civil duty as what you took on as the governor, I'm not a fan. So we'll see how this all works out in the end, but that's basically where we're at. Tonight's story is uh, its one that I've been looking at for a while. I had to do a little bit extra research on it to get some, uh, to get some information. Um, if you have questions coming out of it, please make sure that you uh, do reach out to us, uh, the Gallows pod at gmail.com right yep yeah uh, i'm open to questions that uh, we've really appreciated some of the feedback that we've gotten so let's go ahead and jump in so this gentleman his name's robert j culver right he's at work and he's not feeling real great you know we've all been there and he goes talking to his boss and this is on january the 29th of 1999 he's talking to his boss telling him he's not really feeling good and his boss is like hey man go home for the day if you want to you know he's like you know what i'm just gonna stick it out I mean, he wanted to get paid, you know, but the biggest reason he was wanting to make sure he got that money in is him and him and his wife had just recently been able to buy their first home. They had gone from a trailer to where it's like, this is kind of like their first jump up in life. You know what I mean? Like all that hard work finally paid off into getting a house. Absolutely. So he wanted to have that. And then the other part of that though, too, was he had two stepdaughters, right? Their names were Stacy and Christy, 16 and 14. And they had been a lot of discussion, you know, around Christmas time that, they felt like they were still being treated like they were little kids, you know? So they're trying to make sure that, hey, there's some time, a couple hours at the end of a school day, you know, where you're home by yourself. I mean, you ever had that where your kids, like, are home, like they come home for a few hours and they're at home before you get there? Have you been there yet? I mean, uh, a little bit. Did you have that any of that with with Bree before before we got to COVID? No. Like she was never home on her own at that point? I remember coming home from school and, and being home for an hour or two hours before, like, my mom got home. Oh, yeah, all the time. Right. But no, I mean, our situation's not like that. It's just never quite been like that. Yeah. yeah. So, like, because of those two reasons, it's like, well, I don't feel that bad. I'm just going to go ahead and write it out, you know? Well, 
get to the get to the point where it's finally the end of the day. He's excited, you know, that he gets to go home, and he gets home and he walks in and he's like, "Hello," and like he doesn't get an answer back, you know, which is kind of unsettling. And he doesn't see either one of the two girls, so he's like hollering, like looking for him, and he sets his shit down in the kitchen, and then he starts going down the hallway, and he gets to Christy's room. Christy is the younger girl; she's the fourteen year old, right? He walks in there and he sees Stacy laying there in a pool of blood, not moving in the younger sister's room. So the 16 year old is lying on the floor bleeding out. So immediately he realizes that she's gone. So he's like, where is Christy? You know? So he starts panicking, starts looking for Christy and he's running all over the house. Well, you gotta remember this is 1999, right? So their family telephone was in the basement. A lot of the times it was down there because the girls were down there talking. So it sounded like it was kind of like one of those finished basements. I don't know if you ever did this. Talking on the phone growing up, it's like, you don't want to talk in front of your mom and dad. Never. You know? So she goes down the basement most of the time when they're talking on the phone. So he heads down to the basement to try to find the phone. He gets down there, and he is shocked to see Christy on the basement floor. She's bleeding profusely from the neck, and she's naked, 14 years old. So he gets on the phone, calls 911, and thank goodness— the, the cops are on it. I mean, they are the, the between the police and the ambulance both have arrived within four minutes, which that's, that's great. That's a pretty strong response time. Right. Yeah. So they get there, they get to work on her. They get to work on Stacy. You know, they understand that time has gone by to where they, there's nothing that they can do for her. And the police are kind of gathering. They want to answer. I mean, talk to the dad real quick, you know, like Ron, what's going on? You know, what did you come into? Like they have to get a statement from him. He's trying to process the entire moment that he's just been through and the cops say, we're going to talk to the dad, get her to the hospital. We're going to send a police escort with her, but we're not going to talk to her yet, which feels like the right move. Right. I mean, I think so. I mean, this girl is bleeding and naked and they don't even know the full extent of what has gone on with her yet. You know, they can tell that she's not in great shape. So they're doing work on her. So they're in the process of getting her loaded up. Her dad and a police officer are beside her while they're loading her up. And apparently she goes, she, she like, motions to her dad and her dad's like what and she just goes paul powell paul powell was the name that she gave him that's all she said so and there was a cop standing there and like heard this audibly at the same time right so it's like it's not like maybe that's what she said maybe that's not what she said the dad and the police officer both hear this thing and the cops like we're on it so cops start diving into it right which you know credit this guy i mean can you imagine coming home to a scene like this real quick like Never in a million years. I mean, we both have kids. I couldn't, <clears throat> after a long day at work, you know. No. And it's bad enough to find one, but then you find the second one. You know what I mean? I mean, I'm sure in that moment he was some kind of grateful. You know what I mean? To like find the, one alive. Right, to find one alive. But yeah. I, I just, trying to process this, I, I, I have a hard time with these ones sometimes when it's a dad. You know what I mean? Because it's like, it feels very connected. Well, it's relatable, even though you would never want to relate to it. Right. It's just something that, like, in your wildest dreams, you actually could imagine, you know? So the police get this name, Paul Powell. They know exactly who this guy is. So they go directly to Paul's mom's house where he lives, and they bring him in for questioning. So Paul, important to mention right now, he's 20, right? So the girls are 14 and 16, and Paul's already 20. He was known for, to the police, kind of a punk kid, honestly. He's 20 years old. He's a delinquent. He's been in fights and stuff growing up. Like, he has kind of a violent past, but he's like— Five nine, a buck fifty. Like this guy isn't somebody that like puts fear into people when they see him. You know what I mean? But from all the accounts, you know, and they even find this in a police report for uh, he had actually had a drunken disorderly in the year prior to this in 1998. 
Like he's one of those guys that gets the liquor in him and all of a sudden he's 10 foot tall and bulletproof. You sure. know, yeah. he, you can become a handful real quick at 140 pounds of upset. Right. You know, whether you're founded or not and what you're doing. Right. So they get to the house, they get him and they pick him up without incident. Take him right down to the station. No problem at all. Right. So they start trying to dive into like, why could this have happened? Right. So they leave this guy basically in an interrogation room before they go in. And I don't know if you guys have ever seen this on TV, but it's like you see where like they leave somebody sitting there for an hour, two hours, whatever it is. Just for body language. Well, it's body language, but it's also because there's a reason they picked him up. But in a situation like this, it's like same day, like this whole thing just happened. They're still collecting information. Like they don't have everything yet. Like they, right. like we need to learn as much as we can before we go in and start this question and answer. Right. I'd never heard of it from that perspective before. I don't know if that's I mean, common it, or if it's just when things happen this quickly. I mean, it makes sense. But yeah, I mean, they're probably not doing it necessarily 100% deliberate, but. Yeah. You can still watch the guy and see what's going on. Yeah. You're sitting there with your his hands in his face like for an hour and a half. You know he's probably not feeling too good about the situation. Yeah. You know the, you know the big thing that they say is that if, uh, if they fall asleep, they put their head down on the table and fall asleep guilty every time. Really? Yeah, 100% true. I, I've seen several different cases where they've talked about that. And like they just want to go to sleep and forget about it. It's because, not forget about it, but because, just not deal with it. It's because the worry isn't there. They're not worried that they're going to get in trouble for something they didn't do. If they fall asleep, they're not guilty? They're guilty every time. They put their head down on the table and fall asleep? Guilty every time. Imagine that. Well, imagine, imagine you get brought in for something like this. You find out that a girl's been murdered and her sister is in bad shape, and they think you had something to do with you it. You wouldn't be able to sleep. I, I wouldn't be able to function. Right. You're going to sit there as the most nervous Nelly on earth, worried about your entire life being taken away from you. But if they sleep, then okay. See what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. We'll have to do a little bit deeper dive on that. But I've definitely seen a few different things about it. That's the case. That is crazy. So while he's in there pondering on his own, they start doing a little bit of homework, right? They find out that this guy actually befriended her in high school when she was 14. So from what it sounds like, she was a freshman and he was like a senior-ish at the time. I can't really find anything whether or not he actually graduated. So maybe, maybe not. But it sounds like like with that age, because a four-year age difference, it's a pretty good age difference for these, right? So they were not like any type of best friends or nothing like that. It was more like they kind of hung out in the same friend groups. You know, they, they knew each other, you know, and it's not, it's a town of 40,000 people, right? Manassas, Virginia. It's not a giant place. 42,000 people, I think was their census in 2020. Right. Right. But shortly before the, the murder took place, he had kind of stopped into the, over to the house kind of randomly. Like it wasn't like they were like the kind of friends where like they just kind of popped in and stuff. And he gets there and like, from the moment that he's there, like the the mom and her name's Lorraine, the girl's mom, um, she's like, get him out of the house. Like he doesn't belong here. Like what is this guy doing here? Like get out of my house. You know, towards like it's not something that he was like super duper welcoming, right? So they find that out. Well, then they start to get little pieces and stuff coming in about what actually happened, and it's like, okay, he knew from that day when the mom was going to be home for lunch and not be home for lunch. So he was he had some information about where the family was going to be at, knew that the dad was going to be at work during the day, knew from his own experience that the high school let out before the middle school did right to where he's got a whole plan kind of coming back to him. It's kind of creepy when you think about how much information you can discern just from stopping by to somebody's house. Well, sure. And he's putting it all together for bad things. Yeah. So come to find out too, that he had made a plan that he was actually going to go over and confront her that day. The reason that he was going to confront her, which I think this is weird for somebody that's not super duper close friends was that, um, she had recently started dating a black guy, right? Person's a person, but like, apparently he had a major problem with this. 
This is in 1999. Like, it doesn't make any sense. Like, I remember growing up in school, like, it was already a very common thing. Like, this wasn't like some big shock. And, and that's in 99. You know what I mean? I mean, today, most people don't even notice unless they've got a real problem with themselves. You know? Oh, 100%. Right. So they, they start to dig in and ask some more questions, and they come to find out that, like, even in some of the police reports on him, that, like, he had made racial comments and stuff like that in the past. So, like, okay, like, it feels like there might be some validity to, to the reports that they're getting in. I mean, these are from witnesses. They're calling people that are friends of his, trying to get some information, you know, that they can about who is this guy, you know, because they got a name. They knew who he was, but no real background as to why he might have done this, right? So prior to ending the holding room, they, they were they were briefed. So, like, they were getting ready to go in, and then all of a sudden they find out, hey, we actually have a full statement from Christy, the younger daughter, right? So this is what they find out from that. When 14-year-old Christy got home, she was surprised that Paul was at the house. So she asked what he was doing, and he said, oh, I'm waiting for Stacy. Well, she thought that was weird because Stacy was already home from school, right? So that seems like a bizarro answer to her. You know, I guess that's, that's rule number one. You know, if you ask a question and get a weird answer, Something's awry. It's not good. You know what I mean? So she just kind of brushed past her and started heading for her room. Well, when she gets to her room, what does she see? Her sister lying there right as she enters her room. She's obviously shocked by this sight, right? So she turns around, and he's, like, right there. So clearly he'd been in the house at some point because she says that the next thing that he does is he orders her to go to the basement, right? So, like, he somehow knew that they had a basement that had some kind of a situation, and it wasn't just, like, a dirt floor basement you know what I mean? Can't find in, in any of the notes that he had ever actually been in the basement, at least not that anybody was recalling in their testimony. Well, you know, after he took care of the older sister, he might have had some time to look around. Exactly. So gets her downstairs, right? We'll actually get to that later. That's great foreshadowing. You didn't even know. I love it. Just as a simple reminder for friends, Adam never knows week to week what these stories are. He learns them all on the fly, just like you guys do. So they, he gets her down in the basement. 14-year-old Christie's now down in the basement with him. And he tells her to undress. Undress. And he does this at knife point. Right? So she does. And he proceeds to rape her. And then he gets up and gets dressed. What he did next I thought was a little bit peculiar. He actually takes the shoestrings out of her shoes and uses those shoelaces to bind her hands and her feet together. Almost like something you would see out of a movie. Right? Where you're tying your hands and your feet together. And then he heads back upstairs. Well... She's a fighter, if there ever was a fighter. So while he was gone, she actually is able to kind of like get her get her hands free, right? To where her feet are still tied together, but she's scooting herself like across the floor to try to hide underneath the steps. Like, you know how steps kind of create that cavity underneath of them? She's trying to get over there. Like, I don't know how she thinks that she's going to get away, but I feel like that's an instinctual move, probably more than anything else. So he's only gone for a few seconds. He comes back down and he sees her. He grabs her and he pulls her back into the room. He gets on top of her, like the seated position on top of her, and chokes her out, like completely unconscious, right? She wakes up, and it kind of pisses him off that she wakes back up, and he ends up stabbing her in the stomach, right? And I, apparently, he stabbed her twice in the stomach, and he just missed her aorta. You hit the aorta, the show's over. I mean, with a few minutes, it's all done, right? Then... He decided that he was going to slash her throat. And instead of like a singular deep cut, he just misses the jugular. But he ends up slicing her throat like multiple, multiple times. They ended up having to use 61 different sutures to close up those wounds. Wow. Right. Like, I mean, how did she even give a story? 
Right. That especially like that soon Ugh. afterwards that they were able to get this kind of information. I mean, kudos. Fourteen years old to go through an ordeal like that. Like that is that is some rock star stuff right there. You know what I mean? And then like to remember all of this detail and stuff that goes with it. You know, I mean, you're losing blood on a situation like that. You've been stabbed, you've been sliced. She's you know lucky what I mean? She even lived. Right. I mean, she could have been in shock at that point and like everything becomes something that you really can't recall. You know what I mean? So I, I just sometimes you read this kind of stuff and you're like whether you know it or not, there's people that just have a fortitude in them. You know what I mean? Like, that's tough. So that was pretty rock star by Christy on that. Big time. So the investigators go in, right? They get a quick confession out of Paul. Like, there's almost, like, basically they sit down like, this is what we got, this is what we got, this is what we got. And he starts telling a story that's his version of the story. And they get a confession out of him, like, right away. He gets arraigned in the next week, set for trial. And short period of time, he gets found guilty of capital murder. Right. And then he also is found guilty of rape and attempted murder with Christie. Right. So at testifial, Christie has to go through the entire thing, which I hate when they do that on some level. If you have the written statement, I've never understood why they have to go back and tell the story again in court, especially if you're a minor. They want the jury to feel the emotion. It's pretty much it. Man, I don't know. It just feels it's I wrong, mean, though. I mean, it, I mean, it, you, it doesn't help her. And she's the one that's got to live with this for the rest of her life. I mean, is it to make sure that it wasn't coerced? I mean, I don't know. I feel like I need to do some more research on this part. But so she sits down and in front of this courtroom of adults, she just goes through the entire thing, word for word, everything that's going on. Well, on top of her testimony being a complete slam dunk, the prosecutors also have a fixed blade knife with his fingerprints on it and DNA from both women. That's pretty damning, right? So he's given a death penalty, matter of hours. Like death penalty cases usually take a few minutes because somebody has a real hard time passing that kind of a judgment on people, right? It's like a couple of hours, and the jury comes back with it. It's because it's kids. And and, and if the, if every juror in that room had kids, yeah. it boom. Mm-hmm. I agree a thousand percent. So at this point, it seems like we really have an open and shut case. You know, this kid's going to end up marching to the gallows. But that's not the case. This is one of those cases where where the end of the trial the original trial begins, and now it's circus time. There's three different things here. Dude, I'm telling you, it blows my mind that this much stuff can happen in one case. Okay? <laughs> so the first thing, the first ring of the circus, state of Virginia gets involved, right? So, like, there's a set of appeals that they have to do. Like, they have to go back and look at a case instantaneously. There, I don't know if there's ever been a death penalty case that they that didn't have any kind of a review afterwards. Oh, for sure. Right? So they get down into it, and... This is what the state says. The state came back and they said, well, the physical evidence doesn't prove that he tried to rape Stacy, right? The girl that he killed. And when he raped and attempted to murder Christy, the younger sister, those were separate crimes. Those two things did not go together. So what they're saying, go ahead. Uh, uh, this is bizarre. How, how can it, they be separate crimes? It's he came into the house and tried to kill two people. Right. What they but what they said the physical evidence showed that when it comes to Stacy, the top button of her pants were undone, but her shirt and her pants were still in the same place that they would have been if she was walking around. There was nothing that was disturbed on her in any way. There was no seminal fluid, anything like that that was found. So there was nothing that showed that there was an attempted perpetrated rape there was also no robbery so they couldn't get the commission of another crime that is what you have to have as you know right to get the capital right two things at once right 
I really have a hard time with this because it's not like he left and came back. You know what I'm saying? He waited for the other sister to come home. Like, that's crazy. I mean, even, even if like to me, like that's where I really struggle with this. And maybe, maybe I need to get a, a prosecutor to explain this to me, but isn't that premeditated? It has to be. I mean, right? So if you're premeditating another even crime... If, even if the first one wasn't. The second a, one was. So it's because you haven't committed the crime, even though you're sitting there just waiting for it to happen? You're just waiting for the timeline to come to fruition? Well, that's definitely premeditated. I just I don't understand how those two things can, together don't work. So in the end, the final result is that the death sentence is vacated, right? They change it to life in prison. They changed capital murder to murder two, right? So the conviction is actually overturned, and it's changed to a to a case of second degree murder, right? So second degree murder commuted to life. Now this is all due to the statue, you know, that there was no other crime. We don't agree with it, but under the rules, now the death penalty doesn't fit, right? So family's outraged, super upset. The one little hanging Chad, if you will, here is that because of the way that this was done, he was never actually tried for capital murder. Right. So if you look at it as a capital murder case, he never was acquitted. He was never found not guilty. He was never able to plead no contest. Right. Like those things, none of those things happened in there. He has a guilty verdict from a murder to charge. Right. So second ring of the circus as a result of that. Okay. So the same great criminal mind that decided to kill a 16 year old girl and try to kill her 14 year old sister Decided that, you know, from my prison cell, because now I have all this time on my hands, I'm going to send two letters to the Prince William County, which is where they're at, DA, and his name was Paul Abert at the time, who prosecuted the case. And uh, this is how he starts it out. He says, Mr. Ebert, since I have already been indicted on first degree murder for the for first degree murder and the Virginia Supreme court said that I can't be charged again with capital murder. I figured I would tell you the rest of what happened on January 29th, 1999 to show you how stupid all you motherfuckers are in quotes. He then laid out his entire plan from the beginning. So this guy's like, Oh, you can't get me on the murder charges and give me the chair. You're going to give me more than life. Why not throw in your face what I did? Yeah. Pretty smart, huh? Eh, it's a douchebag move, but yeah. It's a huge douchebag move. I'm not going to read the entire thing of what he said. You can get online. Uh, if you go to Murderpedia, it's on there. It's disturbing. Um, when you read it in his words, it's it's very uh, it's very upsetting. Like it, it will it will make nonviolent people feel a little bit violent. I think it's a it's a pretty messed up thing, you know. But Long story short, I'm going to kind of give you the context here uh, with as much detail as possible. So he explains how on the day of the killing that he planned on killing the entire family. From the schedule that we talked about earlier, he understood. So his plan was to clip them one at a time as they got home. Wait for him in between. He even went on to explain that in between the time that he killed Stacy and the time that Christy got home, he sat on the couch with a glass of iced tea that he got out of the refrigerator and smoked a couple cigarettes while he waited. That doesn't sound like somebody that's super upset about something that they just did. At all. Drinking ice tea and smoking cigarettes. I mean, that's crazy to me. But anyway, so Paul goes on to explain that he went to the home and he was chatting with Stacy while she did her laundry. And then he grabbed her boob and asked her if she wanted to have sex. Then he goes on to paint her as like this complete tramp. 
right? None of this has ever been validated by anybody, just basically shaming his victim after she's gone. I mean, that's a pretty douche move, like you just said, right? Well, from the story he said, or from the way he opened the letter, you can tell he's full of, you know, vindictiveness and yeah, all kinds of good stuff. Yeah. So he said, he said that she said no, you know? So A, he grabs her boob. Like, that's sexual assault. You can't just go around grabbing people. You know, what is that? So she said, no, I have a boyfriend. And he said, well, that never stopped you from before. So they start arguing. So she's tromping back up the steps, pissed off, you know, from the basement. And they get upstairs. And then she goes into her bedroom. You know, she tells him to leave. He doesn't leave. Well, he pushes her onto her own bed and rips her pants down by the ankles. Right? Feels like he's about to perpetrate a rape. Right? So... At that point in time, the phone rings and she's like, I have to answer it. You know, somebody's going to think that it's suspicious. You know, if your kids are home and you call home and somebody don't answer the phone, somebody's in trouble for not answering the phone. You remember those days? You know what I mean? 100%. If I call home and you don't answer the phone, that's your ass. Yeah. You know what I mean? So phone stops ringing, you know, and he leans over and he tells her we can do this the easy way or the hard way. And she says, I'll have sex with you if you just leave. This is his testimony. No other person on planet Earth can corroborate this, but this is what he's saying. Right. Phone begins to ring again. He gets up when he does. She jumps up and she slides her pants back on and she gets up. You know, this girl's a fighter, too, just like her sister was. She decides, you know what? I'm not putting up with this. She tries to run out of the room Well, he blocks her, kind of keeps her in, pulls a knife. When, when he pulls the knife, she starts fighting him tooth and nail scratches his face. And they did say that there were some scratches on his face basically trying to gouge at him. And then she scratched him once and like, she tried to like get past him. And when she did, he plunged the knife into her. Right. I don't know how you kill somebody that you think's your friend that you just tried to rape because she wouldn't have sex with you. Like, I, like I'm trying to like put this whole thing together. I, I can't comprehend what the no, mentality is no. going we, through this entire moment. Right. You won't be able to, unless you have those kind of mentalities. No. He said that after he stabbed her, that she kind of staggered back. And when she did, she just gave him this look like, I can't believe you actually just stabbed me. And he said that he backed out a couple steps, you know, because they're in the doorway when all this happens. He backs up a couple steps into the hallway and she takes a few steps out, like still trying to actively get away from him. And that's where she falls into her sister's room, just collapses right then and there. So once this happens, he's standing in the hallway. She's laying there. He goes, what do I do now? Like, I've come this far. So he decides that he's going to try to use his boot to stand on her neck and choke her to death. So he's explaining how he's literally sliding her foot back and forth on her neck, applying pressure, trying to find the spot to, that will actually close off her airway so that she'll finally stop breathing. Uh, this doesn't work. He tries for about a minute, he says. And then he's like, you know what? No. And he proceeds to stomp her her, her neck and her head until she stops breathing, basically collapses her neck and her windpipe. Like that's how he killed this girl. That was his friend says that, uh, after she finally stopped breathing, that that's when he did in fact go in, got the iced tea and the cigarette, sat down and just waited for, uh, for Christy to come home. So then his version that also goes into this, he also said that, uh, you know, he thought Christy was dead. You know, that the only reason Christy's alive is because he didn't do a good enough job. He thought Christy was dead after he had raped and stabbed her in the throat and in the stomach. I'm like, dude, it's crazy. But he said that after that, he uh, he thought, you know, I'm kind of tired. 
from all of this. Like there's a chance that when Rob gets home that he might get the best of me. So I'm going to go ahead and cut my losses and get out of here. There was no remorse in any of that. It was it was self-preservation. Well, I mean, he's not going to sit around and have a couple cigarettes and an iced tea if he's worried about self-preservation. I mean, this guy's just a psycho. Yeah. It, it, one of the questions that, that they asked him that I thought was interesting, they said, um, and this was in his original, his original interview, they said, were you trying to kill Christy? He's like, I didn't have a choice. Like, what? So that he basically said that he couldn't leave her alive because he couldn't leave any witnesses, right? Well, what he failed to realize in writing this giant letter that lays out exactly how he killed Stacy and that he thought that he had killed Christy was that vacating a capital murder charge, he can now be charged again with capital murder, right? So they bring him up. He sends another profanity-laced letter to the DA afterwards. I won't give you any quotes from that. Basically telling him to hurry up. Like, yeah, you've got me now. You know, I never should have opened my mouth, but you got me now. Can you hurry up with this trial? So they send him to trial again. Takes no time. I mean, this is like one of the fastest capital murder trials of all time. I think it said it was seven days start to finish, which is nothing. I mean, you look at how long the OJ case trailed on. So real quick. Yeah. So they couldn't. They said originally they couldn't retry him because of what? Double jeopardy laws. That's what he thought. But the fact that they had changed the capital murder to murder two, post-conviction. Gotcha. Right? So since they made that change post-conviction at a review board, it was like he had never been charged with murder one. Oh, okay. Yeah. Like something that I, like, I can't believe that he didn't realize that this wasn't explained to him properly. I mean, how would you find out? You would think that through that process, because he gets found guilty of capital murder, he's now on death row, right? All of a sudden, you're being taken off death row. You're getting life. You would think that his lawyer would explain to him, you're no longer guilty of capital murder. You're now guilty of murder, too. Well, maybe they did. And he still didn't get it. Well, I'm not going to say that this guy was a super smart guy any way you, uh, any way you put it, right? Right. So the, the, the other th- disturbing thing that he does is during this period of time, he actually... Um, don't know how he got it in prison. He was actually able to get a picture of a pretty scantily clad woman that sort of resembled Stacy, and it sent it, and he sent it to Stacy's mom, and he basically said, "Does this look like somebody you know? She looks familiar to me." Just being an asshole. How would he get the address? And how, how this shouldn't be able to be happening from, you, from you, a prison? You would think that you wouldn't be able, as a convict, to send mail to a victim's family, right? Yeah, I don't know. But that's exactly what happened. So he's convicted of murder, capital murder, the second time, given a second, uh, a second death sentence, which everybody here is happy about, right? Well, now it's time for the third ring of the circus to come to town. So when the second trial concluded, jury comes back quickly, which we already know. The judge presiding over the case has the ability to agree to impose the jury sentence. So here's something that I, I kind of I understood it, but. It was nice to read it in plain English. So if a jury comes back and the jury says, we want the death penalty, the judge can go, yes, or no, you get life instead. If a jury comes back with life, all he can do is life, right? So the only way that you get a death penalty is if the jury and the judge both agree on it. Anything less than that, you're not going to get it in Virginia. I think that makes sense. I'm okay with that. I don't mind checks and balances in this kind of stuff. That's why he's a judge, man. Right. So... Knowing that that's the case, they have to go through the judge sentencing after the jury's already sentenced him. So that's why we're having this hearing, right? So, and anytime you end up in a situation like this, what do you have? You have character witnesses that come forward, right? Well, 
Kind of crazy. First time that this has ever happened in American history uh, during a capital murder trial. One of the jurors from the second capital murder trial is now a character witness for Paul Powell. This woman's name is Jennifer Day. She was actually the jury forewoman. Right? She is the person that was the leader of the jury that found him guilty and sentenced him to death. Right? She's coming on to say that she saw something in his eyes and she started letter corresponding with him. Yeah, yeah. You see right where this is going. She fell in love with him. Oh, I'm sure she did. During the trial. Right? She had no idea that she was going to feel this way. You know, that she would feel such a connection to him. Begins writing him letters, sending him money, going to visit him in prison. She's married, by the way. <laughs> and the only, I don't know if she got the divorce as a result, but it said that her, her husband was unnerved by this. I would think it would be a little bit further than that. You'd be so stupid. Right. You want to get involved with somebody that just was so brutal or killed two young kids so brutally. Yes. But... You're so attracted. Right. I'm like, what? And this is ridiculous. Well, the the defense hears this. What do they do immediately? They want to have the entire thing thrown out. Right? I mean, clearly something was off with this jury. You know what I mean? This woman's falling in love with him. Like, did he not reciprocate fast enough? And that's why she got mad? Right? So that's what the judge says, no, no, no. That's not happening here. If somebody that in love is in love with him is willing to sentence him to death, I'm going to go ahead and uphold that. Thank you very much for playing, right? So that gets upheld, this entire mess. She sticks by his side the entire way through. It doesn't surprise me if she's went that far already. Right. Over the next nine years, she stood right there, right? Crazy part to me is like, if you look at it from this perspective, she was inept on that jury. She said that she didn't know that they could have given him a lesser sentence. She didn't understand that. She didn't understand that they, that they, as a jury, could give him less than a death sentence. So she was as bad as a jury as he was at committing crimes she and had, keeping his mouth shut. She had two rocks in that box, man. Right. And she was not using them all. Absolutely ridiculous. One of the other things that I like is that Virginia didn't really mess around. Nine years, which in that's great death row land, like that's not very long at all. Nine years, everything had gone through. There's nothing left to do at that time. That brings us up to March 18th of 2010 to where he's finally going to get his comeuppance. Amen. So he had chosen the electric chair over over getting the, getting the jab. Uncle Frank? Yeah. Like, I was like, whoa. Like, uh, So went back and checked on that. There have been 82 times in the state of Virginia that a prisoner has had the option between the two. Only six out of the 82 have they chosen the chair. Super interesting. Um Another thing, I've not seen this before in a case, uh, first-timer. There's all kinds of weird stuff in this case, I feel like. Um, his final meal was requested. There was a final meal request. But in Virginia, they have an option for the condemned to keep that private. <laughs> so we have no idea what that could have been. It's so stupid. Like, why would that be kept private? We need that to be anonymous, sir. Right. Um, there was a really, really good article that was written by Josh White uh, from the Washington Post. He actually was there to witness this entire, the entire execution. I thought that it was super interesting. So um, I know it's a little bit of a monologue, but I'm just going to read his depiction of what actually happened, if that's okay. Uh, He says, at 8.53 p.m., Powell handcuffed, entered the room with four guards through a door to the right side. He wore the same light blue shirt and dark blue jeans 
that all condemned inmates in Virginia have to wear. The right pant leg was cut off above the knee. He wore flip-flops. Powell looked gaunt and pale. How would you not look gaunt and pale walking to your own execution? It might even vomit a little bit. Probably pee a little, you know. At least I probably would in that moment. He had a stern look and held his chin high. He was placed in the chair with a total of six guards. They asphyxiated the eight straps around his ankles, wrists, upper chest, waist, and main chest. I don't know what the difference between upper and main chest are, but maybe, must, maybe, one's, a little, maybe yeah. one's a little lower than the other. Got to keep them secure. Yep. A clamp was attached to the right leg below the knee, and a metal skull cap was placed on his head with a chin strap. Powell swallowed hard, and his eyes darted around the room. I'm sure you're pretty hypertension at that point. I'm sure there's a little adrenaline flowing through you, right? I don't know. I can't even imagine what you're thinking at that time. No way. Other than just like, throw the switch, man. Get it over with. This is too intense. Right. For all of these that I've read, this is one of the first ones I've ever sat back and read this account. And like, I feel like I can feel it a little bit. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So 8.58, right? So we're five minutes later at this point. An official switches on a microphone in the room. And Powell's asked if he has anything to say. He just stared straight ahead and says nothing. A minute later, a face was placed a face mask was placed over his face, covering him from forehead to chin with just his nose exposed. The guard wipes his face and leg with a white towel. After a key was turned on the far right rear of the room, activating the system, a man concealed in an adjoining room hit the execute button on the machine that was described as being about the size of a top-loading washer at precisely 9 p.m. Pretty good understanding of exactly what's going on here. It's the first time I've heard of the, the strap on the leg that has the electrodes in it. It makes sense as your secondary ground source to close the circuit, right? But yeah. I, I, I've, I've never seen that talked about. I'm sure that that's a common thing. I feel like I should have known this before. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's just maybe this is just highly detailed. Yeah. There was a thump in Powell's body as he jerked back into the chair. His hands clenched into fists and his veins swelled as his arms turned red. Smoke rose from his leg. Officials said 1,800 volts at 7.5 amps, which is about 13,500 watts, or enough power to run 135 100-watt light bulbs, flowed through his body for 30 seconds. That was followed by 240 volts at 1 amp for 60 seconds. And then that cycle was, was repeated. So... Different than what we hear in some other cases where it's hit it and quit it, hit it and quit it with very heavy voltage. Right. This is a lot lower threshold. This doesn't sound like Uncle Frank at all. This does not sound like an Uncle Frank job. No, this is uh, not as clean. Yeah. Uh, He's obviously getting lit up quite a bit for 30 whole seconds. I think Frank Luchter, his were like 10 second jobbies. Right, like quickies. Yeah. Right. With the second major jolt, smoke and sparks emitted from his right leg. His knee appeared to swell and turn purple, and his knuckles went white. You imagine a spark flying out of somebody's leg? In this situation, yes. Couldn't happen to a nicer guy, right? (laughs) At 9.03, the electricity stopped. Everyone waited in silence for five minutes. At 9.08, a guard walked up to Powell and opened his shirt. The doctor emerged from the door on, on the left side of the room and placed the stethoscope on Powell's chest in search of a heartbeat. There was none, and he was pronounced dead at 9.09 p.m., and the curtain was drawn. Wow, 10 minutes. 
less than 10 minutes and the show was over because they hit it at 909. I mean, they hit it at nine o'clock on the dot. That's was a when long they flipped time. The well, but five of those minutes were waiting. Were they waiting? Okay. Was the sitting and waiting. Okay. So that is the execution of Paul Powell. A lot of twists and turns in that one. So few few questions to follow up at the end. How do you feel about the fact that this was not a double jeopardy case? He was tried for capital murder. He was convicted of capital murder. That statute changed. I, I still feels double jeopardy to me. Like it feels like once they got the secondary information, even though he's the one that provided it, should it have been the same charge? I think they got it wrong from the beginning. Yeah. That's what I think. It's wrong from the beginning. But I'm saying in a case like this, are they like, so my question is this, if, if a prosecutor is going for the death penalty and they do not get it, right? Why don't they do this more often? Like, why wouldn't they do that more often to where they would reduce it? Well, see, if it's going to be if it's going to be life anyway. The thing about double jeopardy is you can't be tried twice for the same crime. No, that is not what double jeopardy is. Double jeopardy means that you cannot be tried twice identically. So, like for this, you can't be tried twice for it. So, like if well, that's you—that's what I said. So, if without getting into the weeds on it, capital murder and manslaughter, two different things to the court system, right? Right. So if they try you for one and they don't get a conviction, they can come back years later and try you for another one. Right. Right. And then if you're military, there's even a third option because military prison doesn't work the same as citizen prison to where they can you can get exonerated on murder one through the state. And then all of a sudden they find more information. They still want to go murder one again. Well, you served in the military. Welcome to military prison. I don't know. I am not upset about the way that this case ended up. Given, right. given all the things that are actual true knowledge. Th- these are not speculative. You know? See, I, I think it's different, though, because they had the case arranged one way. That's how they were tried. And that's why he didn't well, – well, they said they couldn't give him capital punishment or the capital punishment right. initially. Right. So that's how it was tried the first time. And then they – whether they – whatever you said, they changed something. But then they found out more information – which which led it to be the capital punishment because everything was the way it should have been for a capital punishment. They just were not initially charging him that way. Yeah. So, I don't know if you finally get all the evidence. It just feels like it's like a weird slippery slope. I don't love the way that all of it was handled. If you didn't think like, how does somebody not review that ahead of time to say, hey, we don't really have evidence that there was a rape perpetrated in this or right. even attempted. There was nothing stolen. So we really don't hit the statute. I, now I can ide- I can understand that with as, with as egregious as this was, like that they wanted to go for the death penalty initially. I, but, I but and, and are, I support but that. But those are two different charges: the first set of charges without the rape, then the second with the rape. Yeah. So that is not double jeopardy. Those are two different. By changing the little the, the one, yeah, it's different. Yeah. I wonder how often this gets cited as case law, like like the original trial. Like I wonder how often they get cited by other cases throughout the country yeah. with them going back. And because there's two crimes, even though they happened in the same location on the same day, but them saying that they're not directly connected. I, I think you have to be a moron in this in this situation to not say they're not directed yeah. or, or, or connected. Linked. Yeah. Linked. I'm with you. Um, Silly. Does – just looking at this, he was obviously trying to murder Christy. 
right? He raped her mm-hmm. and attempted to stab her and then cut her throat. Yes. Right? In a situation like that, do you think that that should be an option for death penalty? If you're blatantly, actively trying to murder that person. My, my question is, in, in an attempted murder like this, shouldn't that kind of qualify? So because yes. Christie's a survivor, he wasn't eligible for a death penalty for the crimes against her. That doesn't seem right to me. It's not right. That's what I'm trying to explain. I feel like with as egregious as something like this is, so you agree that, like, uh, that's what I think. I, I, I think that... He stayed in one house and tried to kill two people. Right. One survived. It's still attempted murder. Right. I don't get it. I mean, I think a rape and attempted murder together have got to be worth a death sentence, right? No, a, a death. No, I, but I'm saying if you remove the Stacy situation... But you don't... But but by keeping it together, it's... But what I'm, what I'm saying is if you remove the Stacy situation... To where you have a rape and attempted murder only. Wouldn't don't you think that in today's day and age that that should qualify? With the I mean, value that we have on human life in society that we've never really had before? I think it should. Uh, I mean, I'm glad she survived. I don't know. Yeah. I think it's brutal enough. That's he, what I'm saying. He thought she was dead. Right. I mean,. I don't know. To yeah. me, like I feel like that's something that, that I'm gonna have to dig into a little bit more too. It's like, but to me, as I read this, I felt like that was the case. If you want to go, if you want to ask me a little deeper, just stomping on his sister's throat to deserve to kill her—that deserves a death penalty. I mean, he choked this girl, thought she was dead, right. stabbed her in the stomach, and then slashed her throat mm-hmm. after he raped her. That's that's the, the the only reason that he doesn't get a death penalty for that is because he's an inefficient killer. You know what I'm saying? Right. Like it doesn't seem like the punishment fits the crime on that one right. to me anyway. It's a complete attempt. Yes. It wasn't like he swung a hammer and g- lightly grazed her face. Yeah. Now, I know we've all seen like the TV shows where there's like, you know, stupid criminals. But like, is this the dumbest murderer you've ever heard of in your life for sending that letter? You're 100%. That letter doesn't happen. He never sees the chair. Like I I think he wanted to. I I, I can't imagine how many people we would ever find if we went through the from 1976 to four when they reinstituted the death penalty there cannot be very many of these to where somebody is basically their own jailhouse snitch right (laughs) that's bizarre as hell right very strange i just i don't know i think it's completely crazy um something else we talked about on the show and i know that it's not really all that feasible but um ron the dad actually later on uh, while the trials and stuff were going on, um, he said that he act- actually had requested a face-to-face meeting. And he said that if that had been granted, he would have assaulted Paul, and it was very likely that only one of them would have walked out. you think there's any room for that in the 2024 society? I know that we've talked about like the, the old like eye-for-an-eye adage, you know what I mean, or letting the families take it. I don't know. I see a case like this, and it's hard. Like, he killed one of this guy's daughters, tried to kill another one. Like, at some point... Doesn't doesn't somebody besides the state get to really get their own restitution? I mean, I put myself in his shoes. Yeah. Give me a crowbar and a and a padded room and let me go in there with the guy. Yeah. Sure seems like justice to me. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know how they would no, do it. No one would ever go for it because what if the crowbar got taken? Right. <laughs> I mean, and, and, and not that we could really get to that level, but like. Should he have the option to push that button? Well, this is where you and I have talked over, you know, right over and over again about having five different options in the 
families get to choose. Yeah. From the chair, you know. Yeah. We've even gone as as deep as get the stones out, right? Yeah. You yeah. just get to choose or firing squad, whatever, whatever you want. Yeah. Um I would be totally on board with that. Yeah. I would be interested to see if there was anything they would be able to do like that, but stay within the confines. There, there it would, would be there, tough. There would still be a lot of families that wouldn't want nothing to do with it. Yeah, there'd be a lot of backlash. Finally, uh, last, last question before the before the end here. Um, I was disappointed that um, to, to hear that there was actually a, a small contingent that even protested this execution. I, I, I struggle to understand the mentality of a person that wouldn't feel like this is justice. I know that people have all different perspectives and ideas in this country, but to to I'm asking your the question to you though. Do you, do you feel like there are some cases that you run into sometimes that anybody that disagrees with it, like it's kind of crazy that you would disagree with it. Like how how I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm not asking the question the right way. Like how can you feel like it's morally wrong to kill this guy? Some people just don't believe in it. They yeah. don't believe in the the death penalty. I don't. I don't relate with them. Um, how, how do you not jump on the side of the, the 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 family, the victim's family? Yeah, I don't know, man. It's wild. So, and as always, the final question of the evening is: Was justice served in this case? Yes. I agree. I think that eventually they got it right. I like that they did it on a shorter timeline than most people ever get to stay on death row, and they definitely got it right. This case, like so many cases that we do, there definitely is an element of mental health that has been neglected. If you're really struggling with something and you don't know who to turn to, please pick up the phone and call 1-800-662-4357. That is the National Mental Health Hotline. Absolutely. So if you're having bad thoughts about hurting yourself or others, or just can't kick that substance abuse, please call the number and reach out. Thanks so much for joining us tonight. We'll talk to you again real soon. Stay safe.